Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. My guest on today's show is the president of the United Auto Workers, Sean Fain. He joined us just ahead of his rally with President Biden Thursday, and he was having some technical difficulties. So the audio of our conversation isn't as pristine as you've come to expect from this august podcast. But I think it was a fascinating conversation nonetheless. Here it is. I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. My guest today is the president of the United Auto Workers, Sean Fain. Sean, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So you're on your way later today to an event with President Biden in Illinois to celebrate the contracts, your wins with the, against the big three. And I'm curious, back in September, when he joined the picket line, the first president to do so in American history, did that have any effect on the talks at the bargaining table? Like, what was it like the next time that you walked into that room? Um, you know, I, I think at the bargaining table, the main point of control was the membership. I mean, the striking workers. I mean, but it definitely... Obviously, when the president of the United States visits a picket line for the first time in history, it's a big deal. And, uh, you know, obviously, it, uh, I, I believe it did send a message that, you know, uh, that the president was standing with workers. And, um, you know, as any politician should, you know, that's what this nation's about. That's what this nation was founded upon, the principles. And we have government of the people and it wasn't a government of, of corporations and, uh, you know, which other politicians believe that a corporation should have the same rights as a human being, which is insane. But, uh, you know, it, it was, a, you know, I just believe it was a, it was a great display of, um, you know, support and, uh, you know, and it was, it showed a great disparity between the two can the two leading candidates right now, uh, you know, the other candidate, I mean, held a rally at, uh, at a non-union business that had nothing to do with labor and, uh, or our membership. And, uh, you know, and I mean, obviously in 2019, when the former person was president, he could have visited a picket line then he chose not to, but, uh, so, I think it just shows, you know, two distinct differences there. This was also a really big win for the union reform movement. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that movement. When did you first start to identify yourself as as part of the union reform or union democracy movement? Well, before there was even a movement. I mean, I don't know. I don't, well, I mean, a current movement. I mean, with like in our union with UAWD, I mean, long before that, I'm always an outspoken advocate, you know, for working class issues. I, you know, was anti-ratification you know, in 2007 when they implemented tiers. But uh, obviously, you know, that's was the struggle was there was a lot of individuals. I mean, you know, the UAW back in the 80s had, uh, you know, the uh, New Directions movement but led by Jerry Tucker and others. And, um, you know, uh, that was the first time someone was able to be elected. But obviously the administration caucus tied that all up and, and was able to, you know, minimize that. You know, that was the power they had. That's what we were fighting against. And so from that point forward, you know, it's there's been a lot of us, you know, reform-minded, but, you know, getting a, a way to make that happen was another story, and an avenue to make that happen was another story, coming together to make it happen. And, you know, uh, you know, team, TDU was a great um, role model for, I think, you know, when UAWD was founded, was formed. Uh, you know, I think they looked at TDU a lot and, and their example, and um, UAWD was able to, you know, push the referendum and get one member, one vote, and that's why we're all sitting here. I mean, like me sitting here right now as president is, you know, due to, the reform-minded groups uh, like UAWD and, and TDU that uh, helped uh, you know, lay the groundwork and, and even New Directions, they laid the groundwork and set the table for those of us who ran in opposition of a you know slate that's been in place for over eight years. Um, you know that, That's what enabled us to win this. 
it sort of felt like from the outside that that those reform movements were kind of in a perpetual state of laying the groundwork. There was always something you know, getting in the way of them getting over the hump and actually electing a president like they finally did this year. A lot of a lot of opposition and, and on top, you know, on, you know, it's specifically, you know, it's, it's all about power control. That's what it was all about with the former administration caucus, and uh, just as it is with the wealthy class, it's all about power control. And so, you know, people would always run against the caucus, but they had control of everything. But you know, they had their hands, they had their death grip on the convention, so they, you know, were able to push people to get elected locally and, and get their commitment to support the caucus at, at, at any cost. And, um, and that's what they did. So getting a direct election was the key. And that's where I say, you know, UAWD, you know, played the biggest part in this. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have put a referendum and pushed the one member, one vote initiative. It never would have happened. And that, that's, that was the catalyst for everything that's happening right now. Did the 2007 contract in the midst of the financial crisis radicalize a lot of members? Do you think, how, how did that play into this? Well, I think, so I think members were radicalized before that. I mean, but I think naturally the recession, the economic recession, and you know what happened out of that—the sacrifices we, our members made—it was one thing to make sacrifices, but they became basically the standard mode of operation uh, for eternity. They didn't, you know, it was pitched to everyone as you know, this is we're going to do this temporarily to get let the companies get their feet back on the ground, and then it became just a way of life. And uh, as the companies kept making more and more money, and Workers weren't seeing any anything getting better. Uh, obviously, you know, obviously drove workers to uh, not be happy with what's going on, not not to accept uh, the status quo, and uh, you know, which led us to where we are now. Uh, you know, workers were fed up, and uh, they wanted to go in a different direction, get new leadership in there. But you know, uh, tired of the same whip service, the same story, and you know, and uh, so you know, obviously, I think that led to us having you know great success in the election. And what do you think it was about the kind of structure of the union that enabled the kind of former corrupt leadership to stay in power despite the rank and file, you know, being how, how aware was the rank and file that there was a lot of corruption at the top? And like, why was it necessary for the Justice Department? Well, to I mean, let's be real. I mean, I think how I, you know, I just things back in the early 2000s, a lot of us did, but suspecting and proving it are two different things. And right. And I'll tell you this, it really, for me, uh, you know, I'll never forget, and I think, I believe it was 2017 when the government first announced, you know, their first indictments. I mean, it, you know, as much as I wanted to celebrate and say, you know, hell yes, finally, I mean, it was a gut punch, too, because, I mean, the big concern was, I, I just remember thinking to myself, the union, this union is never going to be the same again. And um, and as long as we didn't change, you know, it wasn't going to get any better and that that was a concern was knowing the system of how it was stacked up and set up i was you know there's not actually a concern that you know it wouldn't ever change if we kept a conventional system of elections and um that's why you know direct elections of our leadership is so imperative and unions it gives the membership the right to pick their leaders um you know because the system before was just a patron system you 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 scratch my back i'll scratch yours if you're my buddy i'll take care of you if you go against me i'll, I'll end your career and that's you know just ruined by right and so you you were sworn in then in March 2023 because you had to go through the runoff and then the stand up strike starts in September. You know, that's an incredibly short amount of time to get ready and you're also coming in with a lot of I would assume remnants of the old guard, the people that you've been criticizing for years, the people that you ran against still there. So how did you in that short amount of time get your staff ready for the war and what kind of obstacles were there in place 
set up by the last. Let me tell you, it was simple. We walked in and everybody was just embracing us. And uh, but you know, I was sworn in on a Sunday in end of March, and and that Monday through Wednesday we were running our bargaining convention. I had no, I had no press, no agenda, no nothing when I showed up on Monday for the convention. I had no idea what was even on anything. Plus, I had a divided convention where, you know, obviously a lot of because the administration caucus always got their people to run and get elected to those positions. So it was very heavily, you know, in favor of, you know, the caucus. And uh, so, you know, it was uh, it was a very cold, you know, start. You know, I mean, that's, that's that's life. That's democracy in action. And, um, you know, um, I had to get a team put in place. And that's why, you know, I brought brought in, you know, some people like uh Ben Dichter, Chris Brooks, Jonah Furman, uh, Don Lee, and, you know, um, they weren't UAW members, but they had a lot of success, you know, working with labor and, and uh, growing unions. And, uh, you know, Brian Shepard's another one for organizing, uh, you know, uh, having organized success and uh, winning good contracts. And that that's, I just felt like, you know, we are so so entrenched in a way of doing things in the UAW. And, and, you know, and I saw that, even me coming up with 29 years. I mean, it's just, we're, it's ingrained in you on how we do things. And so. Mm-hmm. I thought it was imperative to bring in some out, an outside set of eyes for people to look at things with a fresh perspective and uh, and give us insight and uh, and then you know and then utilize the people we have you know their UAW people you know at that level and uh, and then come up with a holistic plan for how we want to approach this and we ran our first ever contract campaign in, in, in very short order I mean it would have been nice to have a year to run a campaign like that but but you know I, I got to say get elected at the end of March to put a team together over the next month and a half and still be fighting about some of that, you know, into June, uh, cause some people still wanted to argue about, you know, bringing in other people. And, uh, once we got over that hurdle, I mean, we were already launching a contract campaign with our organizing teams and education teams, getting out with the regions and the locals. And, uh, you know, and we've never seen this before. So our members at first were kind of, uh, some members were kind of skeptical and like, well, you know, what are we doing? We don't do this. And, but, you know, once once it caught on, once local started having rallies, I mean, just the momentum, just the energy from our members, it was just crazy. You know, doing the members handshake at the opening of bargaining instead of shaking the company's hands like those plants. When those people came out, they were just energized and, 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 and ready to fight. And um, we saw it everywhere we went. So I think the contract campaign really got the membership focused on our issues. And, you know, what we were going after and in, 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 the, in, the, in the event we had to take action, why? Because, you know, the last strike in 2019, you know, the GM took the whole company out. But, I mean, you, you know, you ask 10 different people why they're out there and you get 10 different reasons. I mean, no one really had it. There was no plan. There was no messaging. You know, so, we, you know, we really done a hell of a lot of work in a short amount of time and uh, just to get into bargaining. You know, the contract campaign, I think, set everything up well. And then, you know, we were doing, obviously, our leadership's never done, you know, mass communication like we had. We've been transparent through the whole process. You know, I held weekly Facebook lives, giving the membership updates. And, um, you know, that communication with the members goes a long way. It all, I just think it all tied together. And, you know, we couldn't have asked, uh, really, still trying to get my head around this. Basically, in seven, from, from the day I was sworn in, seven months later, we had all three of the big three TA, and we had a massive victory. And uh, just to see our membership starting out on day one, when I that convention being very divided. But at this point, our membership and our leadership is unified like we never, I've never seen it in my 29 years. And that's, a, that's an awesome thing to look in, in you know, in, in seven months. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And one thing you did this time that didn't one didn't really happen in the past was threw some really hard punches and and also framed this in you know real kind of class war terms and I'm wondering how the executives you know at the bargaining table responded to getting called plutocrats so often I heard there were even some tears in the room like what what was what was that about was did, did this t- did it catch them off guard I think it completely caught them off guard because they're so used to a company union I mean let's be real are we we had a company union. they were in bed with management I mean it's pretty apparent by all the failures over the years of not fighting and not standing up for the right things and it became very evident during this round of bargaining how little they had done because, you know, we, you know, we worked very hard, but I mean, you have to call it like it is. And my, you know, I, you know, I'm a, I, I'm very direct with people. I mean, I, you know, during bankruptcy, I was a negotiator during bankruptcy and, and we were, the workers were blamed for everything was wrong with these companies. And that was, that was complete bullshit and they know it. I mean, we didn't make decisions to buy other companies and, and then sell them for pennies on the dollars and all the bad decisions these companies make. But, you know, but when it came time to pay the piper, they put all the blame on, on our on our pay and our wages and, and our benefits. And, you know, and that's just not true. And so it was important for us to, you know, revamp our communications team and get messaging early out there to, to tell people the, the truth, you know, to put the facts out there. These companies made a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last decade. They made you know, billions in the first six months of this year. CEOs got 40% pay increases. The price of cars went up 30, 35% in the last four years, not because of our wages. We went backwards. So, you know, it was, as I said, corporate greed, consumer price gouging. I mean, people, we need to put the facts out there. And our leadership in the past did a horrible job. They never communicated in the media. Never, they would tell us, no one talks to media, but the president or the VPs, and then no one would talk. So the companies are always putting the narrative out there. And we're not responding. So, you know, it was important to us to, to get the facts out there, to get the public. At the end of the day, that's why every, this campaign has resonated across every every sector. I mean, across working class people from all walks of life. I mean, it doesn't matter for fast food workers or, or what job they do. I mean, our campaign has resonated with working class people everywhere. Everywhere we go now, when people see this UAW logo, they point, hey, we love what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. And, you know, I've never seen that energy in, in my 29 years as a member. And how did that affect the talk? So you're you're at the you're at the bargaining table and you know that you've got this energy out on social media among the public on the ground with people you've got the members galvanized like well, just the power of the membership alone. I mean the public narrative is one thing. But you know them seeing our membership engaged, them seeing our members when we when we would call a plan out on strike, members whose plants didn't get called would be disappointed to see that energy and to see that their workers are fed up and they are they are dying, they want to go, they want to strike. You know, it gave us great power, and that was the beauty of the stand-up strike and how we went about it. Was even though we were striking some plants, just the threat of those who weren't on strike yet going on strike. It was it gave us immense power at the bargaining table. And for people who didn't follow the stand-up strike closely, where where did the idea for that come to come from to hit targeted spots rather than 
a full walkout? You know, look, I wanted to do things different. I mean, from day one, and that was honestly one of the biggest things we were looking at was, you know, the company always picked the target. They, or the union always picked the target, drag things that the company would drag things out to the week before the deadline. Then they'd get serious with the target company. And then the other two would just sit back and wait. Like in the GM situation in 19, it went 40 days on strike. By the time they settled, then, you know, Chrysler and, the, and Ford had to get into bargaining. Again. And, you know, it, it dragged on and on. And that's, I've never agreed with that philosophy. I believe September 14th, as we said over and over, is a deadline, not a reference point. If the contracts aren't done by then, then uh, we take action. And uh, we were very clear about that from the onset. Obviously, I don't think they took serious. Um, I think they're just used to a complacent leadership that always folds in the end. But, uh, you know, as we sat down planning out what we we're going to do, we, we knew, you know, how much we had in our strike fund. We knew that the companies were expecting us to probably do an all-out strike because of what we put out there. And we knew they had probably mapped out how long that money would last. And so we were, you know, basically, you know, we were trying to be good stewards of our strike fund, of our, of our, you know, membership's money, but also come up with a plan that would get maximum results, uh, you know, as efficiently as possible. So, you know, we, we kicked around ideas. Um, you know, Chris Brooks was really, in my opinion, somewhat the architect of the, of the, of the stand-up strike. Uh, Jonah Furman came up with the name stand-up strike. And, but uh, we walked through several scenarios of what we could do or how we could go about striking, and that's the thing we came up with. And, you know, even that, I mean, as we planned it, um, you know, we mapped out every plant by every company, you know, what they produced, how, the, how it affected plants down the chain. Um, so, you know, we had everything mapped out, um, high-level, mid-level, low-level, everything. And then we, it gave us great power with all that, background information to really strategically decide how we wanted to go about this and, and how we what levels wanted to pull at what time. And it also gave us a lot of flexibility to adjust that if, you know, depending on how things went at the bargaining table. So if things were going in the wrong direction, we could amp it up. I mean, so it was really, uh, it, it just gave us so much uh, flexibility and leverage. Like I said, it all plays in together. I mean, getting the membership on board with the contract campaign and and getting energy going around the campaign and getting people rallied around the issues. And, um, you know, I've just, I've never seen it in my lifetime in the UAW. And um, I'm just proud of the work that everyone, I mean, it's a team of people that, you know, put this all together, did all this work. And, uh, you know, just, it's really, I think it paid great dividends for the membership. And that's, that's what the membership deserves. And you've been in a lot of negotiations and I'm curious what the difference was being, you know, involved at a high level and being the president, like, how long did it take you to realize, like, oh, I'm the one that's making the final calls here? I knew that going in, that you know, I mean, but that's a reason why I ran, because I've watched for years, you know, as a negotiator, as a staff person, as an assistant director, as an AA. I mean, I would I would be in there fighting and, you know, arguing and then end up like, you know, in 2019, I basically got told to stay out of the skilled trade part of the bargaining because, you know, we weren't going to roll over on a seven day, 12 hour schedule and other things. And then the vice president, the president's office came in and what happened? They, they agreed to the seven day schedule. And, and, uh, and that's the unfortunate part of this. And that's why, you know, I strove to be different. I mean, all the things I didn't like that went on over the, over my previous four national agreements I was involved in, you know, I, I had my ideas of what I thought needed to change and how we approach bargaining. We needed to involve the committees more. You know, so they knew every step of the way where we were, what was going on, rather than president's office just walking in at the end and, and taking going to a closed door room with, with the vice president and the company leadership and cutting the deal and coming out and saying you have a contract. That's how it used to happen. 
How's it going with Toyota and Honda and other non-union companies? Are you hearing from workers there? Oh, yeah. We've been getting hundreds daily, I mean, hundreds of hits from all over the non-union sector from workers that, you know, want to, they're inquiring about joining the union. So it's, a, you know, it's uh, that's, you know, I said it over and over, you know, you bargain great contracts, that leads to organized success. People want to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, it goes back to our early roots as a, as a union. When the UAW was founded, my grandparents' generation, you know, they, they left poverty and destitution in the South. They moved North. They got jobs in UAW factories and it changed their lives. It was a life-changing job. We haven't been that, you know, in the last couple of decades. And, um, you know, this contract gets us back to setting the standard again. And that's why it's so important to get back to setting the standard, to lifting the standard for everybody else, and then just building on that. And there's another contract fight that was happening simultaneously, Mack Trucks. That one was run in a bit less aggressive, kind of more traditional uh, fashion. It sounds like the, the the members are not terribly happy with that contract. What does that say about kind of the effort to reform the entire union? And, and where, where, where do you think the Mack Truck fight is going? So that's the issue. I mean, that's the challenge. We're trying to change this union. And we knew, you know, the biggest set of bargaining we had coming up was Big Three. That was kind of the most focused. So we, we tried to pilot everything there. Now, you know, we want to try to carry that into every sector on how we go about bargaining. It's just unfortunately having the resources and, and the processes in place to do that, they just weren't there yet. Um, we, since we've had issues at MAC, we've sent, you know, uh, resources over there to try to get that turned around. There were a lot of local issues playing into that contract being voted down also so there was a mix of things that were into that but um we're trying to get this you know standard standardized among every every contract and everything we're doing um but you know i I go back to this i mean we've been in in place for you know six to seven months now and i mean we had to we really just felt like we had to focus you know get some things worked out in one area get get a great contract and then build off that and that's what we're going to do i mean we I'd love to change everything overnight and have everything in place, but it's just not realistic. We're, you know, so we're, we're doing the best we can now to take that to other areas, other sectors, and, uh, and and map out contracts. You know, now that you've had this huge win and you really captured the kind of imagination of a lot of a lot of the public, I'm curious if you're getting people that are pushing you and say, you know what, you know what you need to do next is run for president, not of the UAW, but of the United States. Any, anybody, uh, anybody nudging you in that direction? There's been a lot of comments like that, but I mean, you know, look, I, I'm president of the UAW. I mean, this is what I love. I, I reign for this to, you know, to, to deal with, you know, years of frustration, you know, for the members and myself and to make this union something we can all be proud of. That's my focus and that's where I'm at. And I don't have any ambition to be a politician or all that stuff. I, I, you know, this is what I love. And um, we got a lot of work to do ahead of us. We just, we're just getting started. All right. Well, Sean Fain, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. That was Sean Fain, and that's our show. And also a quick update that I just received as we ended the interview with Sean Fain. You may recall the name Oren Miller from our episode earlier, was it last year, about the county commissioner in the villages who was jailed by a Ron DeSantis-backed prosecutor for what we considered to be, at the time, bogus charges of perjury. Go back and check that episode out, but he was basically railroaded over his opposition to a property tax increase that was there just to benefit the developer that owns the villages. We we just got word that his conviction has been overturned by an appeals court. How you doing, Angie? I'm doing great. You have no idea. So what happened? Just got a call from the attorney telling us not guilty. It's been overturned completely. Amazing. Now, where we go from here, I don't know. 
right now we're just trying to settle down from the news before we decide what we do. Did they issue an actual ruling, or was it just a stamp not guilty? As soon as I get home and get on my computer, I'll send you exactly what we've got. But he says it's been overturned, not guilty. Amazing. He read it. Very short. Got a call from our attorney, but other people knew even before he did. So people, everybody was watching. Already talked. She's got a copy of already. She's already working on this. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm afraid it's not over yet, but we'll see what happens. He's going to go after. I mean, he lost exactly. his job. He lost his pay. He lost everything. They took his job away. He had to go to jail. He had to pay for you know all the expenses and everything. Well, enjoy an apple fritter for me. I will. Talk to you later, Ryan. See ya. Bye, hon. I thought deconstructed listeners would particularly be interested in this because many of you funded uh, the Legal Defense Fund after our episode that enabled him to appeal his conviction. And so Oren Miller personally wanted to pass on uh, a thank you to Intercept readers and deconstructed listeners for kicking in to that GoFundMe, without which he would not have been able to appeal this and he would still be a convicted felon. Uh, Instead, uh, his name has been cleared and it actually clears the way for him to run for office again. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Legal review by David Brelo. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line. Otherwise, we might miss your message. I'll see you soon.